You guys grab a seat. If you have a Bible tonight, grab that and open it to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking at verse 13 and following. Matthew 5, 13 and following. If you weren't here last week, we started to look at the Sermon on the Mount, and I don't have time to recap last week for you. But if you aren't here, try to go to the website, download that, get it off iTunes, and uh, make sure that if you're here tonight, you come back next week, because this is really a two-parter. We're going to look at two things that Jesus talks about in relationship to the Sermon on the Mount and its purpose. Now, very quickly in a nutshell, here's what the Sermon on on the Mount is about. It is about the end of Judaism. The mistake Christians make is reading the Sermon on the Mount and assuming that it's a sermon to them. It is not. It is not a sermon to Christians. It is a sermon to Jews. It is the last sermon to Jews, if you will. This is a sermon taught to every person who will try to approach God without Jesus, regardless of what religion they are, Islam, uh, Judaism, whatever. If they're going to try to approach God without Jesus Christ as their savior, this is the sermon for them. Now, specifically, Jesus is talking to Jews. And if you don't remember that context, these verses are not going to make a lot of sense to us. And especially these first few verses are just going to go right over our heads. So let's dive in. We'll take a look. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. By the way, the first time in the book of Matthew where the word is Father is used for God. And Jesus says it's your Father. Now, Jesus is not talking to Christians. He is talking to Jews. Now, we take these and we use them a lot, and there's truths we can apply to us. But there's a specific thing that Jesus is doing here that's going to play out in the first uh, couple of chapters of the Sermon on the Mount that are directly tied to these two things. First of all, to this image of salt, the rest of chapter 5 is about that, salt. Then chapter 6, almost all of chapter 6 is about being the light of the world. And in essence, what Jesus is doing here is saying, in this sense, you're the salt of the earth. And in this sense, you're the light of the world. And then in both of those uh, metaphors, he's going to show them how they have indeed lost their saltiness and how they indeed are a light of the world that is hidden under a bowl. See, what Jesus is going to do is tell the Jews, here's the thing. You are supposed to be the salt of the earth, but you have lost your saltiness. So now what are you good for? Being thrown out and trampled. You were the light of the world. But what good is it if the light of the world is hidden under a bowl? That's what this sermon is going to do. It's the last sermon to the Jews. And so the last sermon to anyone who will try to earn their way to God. How do you treasure Jesus more? You treasure Jesus more by realizing how much you need him. Tonight is one half the coin that everybody knows. 
But next week is the half of the coin that most people don't know. And that's why I really encourage you to be back here next week. Now watch what Jesus does here. He says, you're the the salt of the earth, but if it lost its taste, what's it good for? Nothing. Throw it away. Let people trample on it. You're the light of the world, but that light is hid under a bowl or or put under a basket or or is kind of the, the, the idea. It's no good. It doesn't give light to the house. No one can see it. He then is about to dive into this idea that the Jews were meant to be this city on a hill. They were meant to be these things. Now, Paul takes these ideas and gives them a little bit fuller sentence. You're going to see this in Paul's writing. Now, remember, here's Jesus saying, you Jews were supposed to be the light of the world. You Jews were supposed to be the salt of the earth. You Jews were supposed to be the city on the hill, but you're not being these things. Now, watch Paul take this exact same idea and make it the linchpin of one of his arguments from the book of Romans. So if you've got your Bible with you, flip over to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, it's just to the right, past John, Acts, to Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, verse 17 and following, Romans chapter 2, verse 17 and following, Paul is telling the Jews why they need Jesus too. And listen what he says to him. Now, remember, Put yourself back in this Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus said. You Jews were supposed to be the light of the world. You were supposed to be the salt of the earth. And listen to Paul say these things. A lot of people say that Jesus and Paul didn't teach the same message. See if this sounds familiar. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Are you seeing? If you're a Jew, you're all these things. And he says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul is telling the Jews the same thing Jesus does in the the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, Jews, if you think that you're the light of the world, then you better have been the light of the world. Because if you broke one of the laws, God's name is blasphemed because of you. Now go back to Matthew and watch Jesus take this idea and really give it life. See, here's what he says. He says, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. And then he immediately goes to talking about the law, just like Paul does. But here's what Jesus says. In verse 17, he says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Because Jesus was in constant tension with the Pharisees, you could walk away very easily going, well, Jesus did away with the law. The law's gone. The law is not gone. You are either in Jesus or you are under law. That's it. Those are your two choices. 
in Jesus or under law. The law is not gone. Jesus very clearly says, if you see me and the Pharisees duking it out, don't walk away from that thinking that I'm against the law or I don't believe in the law. I have not come to do away with the law. I fulfill the law. In fact, he says, not the smallest stroke of a pen in the law will disappear until the kingdom of heaven comes. He even goes further. Listen to this in verse 19. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven of heaven. The word loosen, uh, loosens there is literally the word for untying a horse, untied. Whoever says the law doesn't matter, whoever unties the law, whoever says you don't need to be worried about that, whoever says that is least. They're, they're the least in the kingdom of heaven. They don't know what they're talking about. In fact, he says this in verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me put this in context for you. The average Jewish person listening to this sermon has right now, they've been confused by the Beatitudes because the Beatitudes are all the exact opposite of what you would expect. They kind of are confused by that, but they get over it. When Jesus starts saying, you're the light of the world, they go, yeah. When he says, you're the salt of the earth, they go, that's right. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law. They go, all right, we're Jews. We're getting to go to heaven. We're going to rule. It's awesome. And then he says, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom. Every person listening just went, oh, okay. Let me tell you why. To put it into your context, this is the only way, this is the only thing I could think of. It would be me saying to you this, if you don't live more religiously passionate lives than Muslim terrorists, you will never get into the kingdom. Now you're saying, Greg, are you saying that Pharisees were Muslim terrorists? Yes, apparently. (laughs) I mean the most devout of the devout. I mean the most strict of the strict. I mean, the most sold out for the most sold out. This is what he's saying. If you don't exceed that, and this word for exceed does not mean, as it can in English, do one point better, all right? Exceed in English can mean just do better. This Greek word is the Greek word for when a river would flood, when it would so overrun its banks that it would just completely flood everything. What Jesus says here is not, you've got to be a little bit better than the Pharisees. He says, you have to be so much better than the Pharisees, it's a flood. This is impossible. This is totally impossible. And add to it this, that Jesus puts what in Greek is called, excuse me, uh, he puts into what his Greek is called a Greek emphatic negative when he says you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A Greek emphatic negative. It would be like me saying this to you. Unless your righteousness greatly, massively exceeds that of the most religious people you have ever heard of, you will never, ever, 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 ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Not ever Are you with me now? That's what Jesus has just said to them. Think of the most religiously perfect people you know. 
unless you, your righteousness exceeds those people by a billion, you will never, ever get into the kingdom of heaven. I got your attention now, don't you? You see, to the Jews, they've been told their whole life, do what's right, you get to go to heaven. Do what's right, you get to go to heaven, just like our culture. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is the last sermon to that. And to make sure that we get his point, he's going to go to two sides of the coin. Part one is this, that while the Jews may have thought they were the salt of the earth, they had in fact lost their saltiness. How? He's going to take six things and he's going to show how these six things condemn them. Now, most of these, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I want you to walk through these with me very quickly. I want to point out some things to you. Verse 21, he says this, you have heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Now that's from the 10 commandments. By the way, if you ever say thou shalt not kill, that's not what it says. It says thou shalt not murder. Okay, uh, you shall, thou shalt not murder and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire as opposed to the hell of cotton candy. Okay. Now, if your Bible has the word raka in it, whoever says raka, some of your translations will have that. In this translation that I'm reading from, it's where it says whoever insults their brother. That's where it says in raka. We don't know what that word means in Greek. There's no English translation. We don't know what it means. What we do know is this, that it was an everyday Greek slur. Okay? Just like you fool or uh, these kinds, these are everyday Greek slurs. They're not special Greek slurs, okay? This is not like getting really, really mad and dropping an F-bomb on somebody, okay? This is like going, you idiot, and meaning it. Okay, I know you're going, did he just say F-bomb? Yes, I did, okay? (laughs) This is like going, you idiot, and mean it. It's just an everyday thing. Now, watch what Jesus says here, because I want you to see how extreme this statement is. Follow me back to verse 21. It says this, you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. What that meant was this. In Israel, if you kill somebody, much like the state of Texas, they kill you back. Okay? You kill somebody, you get killed. Death penalty. All right? Now watch his next sentence. But I tell you that everyone who is angry will be liable to judgment. What does Jesus mean there? Because when we read this verse, we go, liable to judgment, I know it's a sin. No, what he says here is this. If you're angry with your brother, you deserve the death penalty. If you get angry with your brother, you have sinned just like murder and deserve the death penalty. Now look at verse 22. He says, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever assaults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. 
Now, next verses I want you to look at, verse 27 and 20. Remember that. Whoever says you fool will be uh, liable to the hell of fire. Verse 27, he changes topics. We know this one. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In his heart. Okay? Uh, He's saying here, if you look at a woman and desire and repeatedly think of having sex with her, that's what this lust means. Many guys deal with this thing and say, if I look at a woman and I desire her, I've lusted. Not so. Okay? Sexual attraction is not lust. Let me put it to you this way. You, gentlemen, are supposed to be attracted to women. That's good. Okay? That is working for you. If you see a good-looking girl on campus, you go, she is good-looking. That is not lust. Lust is when, never mind, okay? (laughs) Lust is when you focus on sexual relations with her, okay? That's lust. And Jesus says that's the same thing as adultery. Now, girls lust too. They're doing it right now, okay? (laughs) That's just how it goes. But ladies, because you don't get a lot of teaching on lust, I want it to be an example tonight. All right? No, girl lust usually deals in different things. It's relational lust. It's looking at some guy and going, oh, he would be perfect. If I could marry him, then we'd have this great life. And I bet I could name, I'm going to get on the little thing on the web to look, show me what our kids will look like, okay? Yeah, do you know how you make kids? Okay, there's a class for you somewhere. When you start imagining your life together and what it would be like and, oh, this guy would be the perfect life, that's girl lust, all right? That's girl lust. You say, how is that possibly girl lust? I don't get it either, guys, but that's how it is, all right? But watch what Jesus says in verse 29. He says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now here's what I want to point out to you from this last section on anger equaling murder and this section of lust equaling adultery. Just like in the other passage, Jesus says, if you do this, you're guilty of adultery. In Israel, adultery is a capital offense. You know that. Remember when the woman is brought to Jesus, drugged to him and thrown down in the street and said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses tells us to stone her to death. That's right. Throw rocks at her until she dies. Adultery is a capital offense. How about that in America? Right? He is saying here, if you lust for a woman, if you lust for a man, you deserve the death penalty. And in both passages, now here's what's going to happen. Tomorrow, somebody around campus, you're going to hear this. Did you hear Greg Pinkner say last night what I'm about to say? Yes, Greg Pinkner said it, but I'm reading to you from scripture. This is Jesus, not me. 
In both of those things, both anger equals murder. And here, Jesus says this. If you say, you fool, you will be what? Do you remember? Liable to the fire of hell, the hell of fire. Here he says, better to pour, pull out your eye than your whole body to go to hell. Are you following this? He's saying this. If you're angry with your brother, you're going to hell. If you lust after a man or you lust after a woman, you're going to hell. Not me. Jesus. See, tomorrow it's going to be, yeah, old Pinkner with his hellfire messages. I can't believe he says people are going to hell. Jesus says, if you lust, you're going to hell. If you even are angry with your brother, you're going to hell. Wow. He continues on. Divorce, verse 31. He says, uh, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Under Old Testament law, all a man had to do to divorce his wife is write it out on a sheet of paper. We're divorced. There you go. Okay. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, death penalty. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what you need to know is because divorce was so easy in ancient Israel, we're divorced. There were a ton of divorced women walking around. Because if a man just went, I don't like her, divorce, you're out. Most women were divorced. Jesus is saying, if you marry a divorced woman, you commit adultery. It was almost impossible to convict a man of adultery in ancient Israel. Okay? Wrong, but true. The only way that a man could be convicted of adultery is if he was married and he had sex with a married woman. That was the only way he could be convicted of adultery. If a woman had sex ever and she wasn't married, she was adulterous. Kill her. Okay? So when Jesus says this, he's saying, hey, all you men who are listening to me who are married to a divorced woman, which was most of them, you committed adultery. Wow. To kind of put it into perspective, it's not the same thing, but to kind of put it in perspective, it'd be me saying this. If you have ever told I love you to more than one person in this room tonight, not counting your mom and dad or grandma, if you've dated two people, and at some point told them, I love you. You're an adulterer. You're going to hell. Some of you are like, man, that's like five or six. Some of you are going, one day. <laughs> It'll happen one day. Yeah. Keep dreaming, buddy. Reach high. This one is a little bit more hard for us to get because we don't really live in this culture. Verse 33 says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Uh, and then he continues, we're gonna skip verse 35, it says this, 36 says, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this, comes from evil. Now, we read that and say, well, I can't take an oath. That's really not what Jesus is saying contextually. What Jesus is saying is not don't take an oath. What Jesus is saying is don't need them. What he's saying is let every word that comes out of your mouth be so truthful 
that you never have to tell people I'm being serious or I promise. Okay. Things that we say like that, we'll say, listen to what happened. I swear to God, this happened. Da, 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 da. Right. That's an oath in ancient Israel. He's saying, don't say that. Never need to say that. Let every word that comes out of your mouth be so truthful that you would never have to take an oath. That every person who knows you knows you are so truthful. You'd never, ever have to tell them you're being serious or that you promise or that any of those things. Never have to promise anything. Never have to tell somebody, you promise? You know I don't have to promise. Everything I say is true. Anytime I tell you I'm going to do something, I am there every single time. This is true of no person in this room because you are college students and live about this all the time. Okay. I promise I'll be there means 25% chance. Okay. Let's be honest. I swear I'll be there's a 50% chance. See, here's the idea. He's saying, let you are so truthful. No one ever even has a doubt that what you're saying is the absolute truth. Is that you? Because if it's not, Jesus says every word that comes out of your mouth, that's more than that comes from evil. Not from, well, I really tried, and I mean, I know I promised, but you don't, see, I know I swore that I would be there, but there was a marathon on of the Real Housewives of Orange County, so I could not go because I've seen those shows all the time, but I had to see them again because I just couldn't be, see, that comes from evil in more ways than one. This one worked for me with verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This was the Old Testament code of justice. As a matter of fact, if you look into this commandment, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know what it's quoted about? Specifically? About the injury to a baby in the womb. If a man punches a woman in the stomach and the baby comes out deformed, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That'll tell you what the Old Testament says about abortion. You have heard it said, you shall, uh, an eye an eye or tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. These are the verses that Nietzsche hated so much that he swore off Christianity. These are the verses that birthed Hitler. There is no person in this room who an evil is done to them cannot not resist them. Anybody in here who when you are slapped can just take it? Anyone in here when you are wronged just say, absolutely, you're right. Jesus is saying if you want to be perfect, you have to be able just to sit down and take it. To do nothing in retaliation. To have no desire for justice or revenge rather. Watch what he says here because he's about to wrap this up. And this is where it becomes the perfection of that idea. That idea is summed up in verse 43. You have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sins reign on the just and on the unjust. Notice that for Jesus, it comes always back to God. He uses God as the standard. 
He uses God as his standard for behavior. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your neighbor. I say to you, love your enemy also and pray for them so that you will be sons of your father in heaven because he sends rain to evil people so they can eat. He sends sun to evil people so they can eat. He's making the father, he's making God the standard. Now watch how he brings this point to one big point. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus is saying, hey, here's the deal, Jews. If you love people who love you, so what? If you love people who love you, so what? And if you greet, verse 47 says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Greeting was this idea of giving God's blessing to people. In Greek in Hebrew culture, when you when you were saying hello to someone, you were blessing them with God's blessing. We used to do this, by the way. The word goodbye is a amalgamation of "God be with you" in English. Goodbye, God be with ye. Goodbye. That's how it became that. Goodbye. We're saying God be with you. That's what it means. Uh, but in Hebrew, the idea was when you greet someone, you are blessing them with God's blessing. You're trying to bless them and say, hello, bless you. Uh, and Jesus is saying, so what? Don't even Gentiles this? Now, to the Jews, there is nobody lower on earth than tax collectors and Gentiles. There's nobody lower on the face of the planet than tax collectors and Gentiles. Tax collectors were Jews who had betrayed Israel and were working for the Romans, and Gentiles were just the scum God didn't pick. Okay? So when they say, hey, if you love people who love you, guess what? Tax collectors do that. And if you greet people and bless them in God's name, so what? Gentiles do that. It would be like me saying this to you. If you think that because you're kind to people that are kind to you, that God loves you, guess what? Child molesters do that. If you think that because you come to church and bless people in God's name, you're awesome, so what? Rapists do that. that that's the context. And so in one verse, Jesus makes Israel understand that if salt loses its saltiness, it is good for nothing except to be trampled. And he puts the true standard of morality before them. And here's the true standard. Verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God's standard is himself God's standard is not the best person you know. God's standard is not you being better than 50.1% of all the people who've ever lived. You don't have to finish, finish in the top 49th percentile to get to go to heaven. You don't have to just, you know, I'm better than most people, so I'm good. No, God's standard is total and complete perfection, just like himself. You must be perfect as God himself is perfect. 
Now, if you're a Jew, if you're a Muslim, or if you are here tonight thinking to yourself, I'm, I mean, I'm a good person, I'm good enough, this had better open your ears. Because if you think you're going to show up on Judgment Day and say, you know what, I'm perfect, well, congratulations, good job. But most of us know we're not perfect. And so what do we do? Paul answers this in a book called Philippians. So if you have your Bible, flip to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Put everything we've talked about tonight together. You're going to watch Paul take all these ideas of being a Jew, of being righteous, of all his works, and you're going to watch him set them down. Chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. People were going around saying, if you aren't circumcised, you're not a Christian. He's called them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What's Paul saying? When it comes to the law, I am perfect. I have never broken one of the laws. But Paul knows what Jesus taught. The standard is not having not broken one of the laws, but having been perfect in the heart underneath it. So Paul never slept with a woman who wasn't his wife. Had he ever lusted? Paul knows according to the law, I'm blameless, but according to my heart, I am not. According to the law, blameless. Now listen to this sentence. This is a huge sentence. I can't stress it enough. According to the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Greek word, a slang word for dung, like our word crap, in order that I might gain Christ. I have taken all this law, I've taken all my good, and I count it as Dung compared to knowing Christ. And I count it as loss so that I can know Christ and be found in him, verse 9 says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now listen to this word, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. The word perfect in Greek comes from the Greek word finished. Really what the word perfect in Greek means is finished, done, completed. Not that I have obtained all this or have already completed. I'm already finished. But I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. If you find yourself tonight, after hearing these admonitions of Christ, completely terrified, I am not perfect. And if what Jesus said is true, if I am a luster or I get angry, then I'm going to hell, I'm in trouble. Yeah, you are in trouble. Just like I'm in trouble. Just like every person who has ever lived is in trouble. Unless Christ Jesus becomes your righteousness. Paul says, I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I want the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The first thing to know in order to treasure Jesus is how desperately you need him. And if you're here tonight and you don't know this Jesus and you're thinking to yourself, I'm gonna get to heaven because I'm good, but tonight after this sermon, you know I am in huge trouble. Know this. Jesus has said, whoever repents of their sin and puts their faith in me will never, ever die. Meaning they will have eternal life. Meaning they have no fear of hell. That's the gospel. That's what Christianity is. That Christ Jesus took on himself the punishment for every impure thought you've ever had. Not just deed, thought. And paid for it all. Paul says, I don't want a righteousness that comes from law. I want that righteousness. And I press on to make it my own. Christ. Leave here tonight knowing how badly you need Christ. And press on to grab hold of him. Be back here next week. Because there's another side of the coin. And you need to know it too. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for your son, Jesus in whom is our hope and our joy, in whom is our uh, total and complete desire. Father, I pray that um, you would set before us the image and picture of Christ as our righteousness, the image of Christ as our hope, as our joy, as our only uh, chance. And in that, Jesus himself is promised Whoever has me has the Father. Whoever has the Father has the Son. 
God, I pray that you will take each person here who is a believer in your son, who goes by the name Christian, and I pray that you would continue to show them the total hopelessness of their own flesh. That you would continue to kill it. Continue to show us the futility of it. I pray like your servant Jonathan Edwards said, that we would labor to learn the vanity of this world. Because in that, as we see this world more and more depraved, as we see our own flesh more and more deceitful, we will see your son as more and more delightful. And this is a mercy to us. Let us see it as such. We thank you for this mercy. And it's in Jesus' name we do so.